Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're doing a little bit of a cross podcast um, casting today. Uh, we are joined by Mona Charon, who's the host of her own podcast, Beg to Differ. Mona, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Charlie, always a pleasure. Now, now Beg to Differ, you have a regular panel. Um, Bill Galston, right? Damon Linker, Linda mm-hmm. Chavez, you, and yep. and a guest. And so and you, we always have a guest. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Kind of cross the some of the political lines there as well. Right, we're center left to center right. You know, we don't have any wackos. Um, No, but uh, but we do have disagreements, and people seem to appreciate listening to actual reasonable humans disagree without being idiots. So that's that's our. That's what we yeah. try to do. Kind of countercultural in that respect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about your piece by uh, about J.D. Vance, uh, who is apparently running for Senate in Ohio with the blessing of Peter Thiel, has become very, very Trumpy, um, burst into fame with his best-selling book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. And, and now he is, I, I, see, I see from the Twitters that he's sitting down with Seb Gorka, which gives you an indication of, of what he has become. And your piece has the has the headline, J.D. Vance joins the jackals. So yeah. I'm going to get to that. A couple of things I want to do first. I mean, just, you know, looking at the, at the news of the day. I mean, I really do think that the two reports that came out about the election um, are BFDs. They, they really are uh, the intelligence community saying that uh, the Putin um, actually authorized extensive efforts to damage Joe Biden's campaign, uh, including mounting covert operations to influence people close to uh, Trump. Um, and this is a very detailed, uh, declassified intelligence report. Now, they don't name names, but the, uh, the, the strong implications is Rudy Giuliani, that they were playing Rudy Giuliani by planting fake uh, you know, smears of Biden in Ukraine. That's number one. Number two, um, there was interference, but it didn't actually affect the ballots. They didn't uh, hack any voting machines, which is reassuring. And then we have this separate report by Justice and the Department of Justice and Homeland Security, which blows up the, the, the Trump claim that the election was rigged by Venezuela or some other country. So uh, interesting, interesting developments. A quick reminder that the so-called Russia hoax was not a hoax at all. And and the ugliness continues. But I'd and I think there's going to be a lot of people who ought to have a lot of egg on their face for peddling some of that uh, that that Ukraine misinformation, including people like my Senator Ron Johnson and Josh Hawley, who spent a lot of 2020 apparently recycling stuff that came from people who were really what's, what's the phrase he was under the purview of Vladimir Putin, which means basically Russian agents. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that we've experienced in this era, Charlie, is that we've almost completely lost the antibodies uh, to react to this kind of thing. I mean, there was a time not so long ago (laughs) when even the suggestion that um, somebody might accidentally, let's say, or or through carelessness be peddling um, Russian propaganda uh, or, or tainted information of any kind, you know, it would have been scandalous. People would have been embarrassed. Um, and uh, those are the kind of informal guardrails uh, to keeping people honest and and keeping the country on an even keel. And so much of that has been lost. I mean, people knew about what Giuliani was doing. He was consorting with these shady Ukrainians who were who had ties to Putin. People looked at it and they shrugged and they said, yeah, but 
but what about, you know, the border or what about, you know, whatever. And, and so it's, um, it's, it's really worrisome that we don't any longer as a, you know, as a polity, like both sides, either side say, yeah, well, there are certain things that are just beyond the pale. No. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, the, the investment in the, in the big lie, uh, was so intense. And so yesterday was, it was a bad day for the big lie. Uh, Donald Trump called into, was it Fox news though yesterday? And what was his direct quote about the, the election? I, I just, I love the way that he, he puts this where he says, you know, continuing to say that he won the election or whatever, that ours, this is a direct quote. Our Supreme Court and our courts didn't have the courage to overturn elections. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Cur- interesting use of the word courage. Yeah. But also the fact that he's acknowledging that he wanted the judges that he appointed to overturn. Overturn. Yeah. Wow. Great use. A very interesting choice of words. Um, yeah. Robert Kostinsky uh, says seamless transition from being the worst president to the worst ex-president. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you actually, though, Charlie, a little surprised that Trump isn't calling into Fox every day? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm still surprised by how effective the Twitter ban was. Yeah, it kind of, it's like the, cl- the 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 sky has cleared. Now, I, we we ought to give him some credit. He did say that he's endorsing the vaccines and tells people to use the vaccines, which was which was good. I mean, sort of a bare minimum mm-hmm. that he said use the vaccine. So good for him there but it sort of feels once again like he kind of goes through the motion because somebody told him you know you won't get credit for this if you don't tell people to use it so he's gonna kind of throw some chum out there uh but i don't think i so somebody was tweeting like well this will save lives i i, I don't know that it's gonna have a huge effect on uh, on the magaverse that that he you know makes one comment during one appearance on fox news i mean i want to give him credit for saying it but I, you know, if, if Donald Trump wants to push a narrative, he knows how to push a narrative and that's not happening. Yeah. You think? <laughs> so speaking of Ron Johnson, could I just do this? I, I have a piece over at MSNBC before we you know, get to your, your, your JD Vance piece. I do a column occasionally for uh, folks over at MSNBC daily. And I did something on Ron Johnson and, and the way that he, he wants you to know that he's a victim. And so he had the piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday where he says, you know, I won't be silenced by the left, that he's going, he's a victim of cancel culture because he was called out for those racist comments about the very, very fine people who pose no threat whatsoever when they were attacking the Capitol. You know, he wasn't afraid of them because they love America and they're just great people as opposed to Black Lives Matter people who would be very scary. So he got criticized and his response is to say, I am being silenced. And he wrote that in the Wall Street Journal, and he says this on Fox News, and he says it in multiple talk radio interviews, and, and he said it in a, a series of, of interviews with, with newspapers. And so what I said was that the problem with, with Ron Johnson is Ron Johnson is not being, um, you know, the problem is not that he's being shut down. The problem is that he won't shut up. <laughs> he, he, all of this is self-inflicted. You know, he's talking about, you know, one conspiracy theory after another. But I have to say, when I was writing this about, you know, Johnson, you know, pulling this victim card, they're trying to silence me by calling out his racism. I I had a voice in the back of my head. And it's it's from the movie Death to 2020, which I strongly recommend. And Lisa Kudrow does a little a little riff there. She's she's playing she's playing a a 
a some sort of Trumpian commentator and and makes the point about, you know, the conservatives are being silenced because this is the thing is that anytime you call out somebody on the right for something that they've said, this is the first thing I'm a victim, I'm being silenced. And so I had this in the in in my head, Lisa Kudrow from Death to 2020. Let's play this. The fact, which doesn't care about your feelings, is that online and in the media, conservative voices are being silenced. I've said this before. I said it on my YouTube channel. Conservative voices are being silenced. I said it on Joe Rogan. Conservative voices are being silenced. On the Jordan Peterson Kayak podcast. Conservative voices are being silenced. I said it on Tucker Carlson. And Tucker, we know conservative voices are being silenced. Twice, actually. Like I said last time, Tucker, conservative voices are being silenced. That is exactly right. And I said it in my New York Times bestseller. Conservative voices are being silenced. It's a point I have to make over and over because conservative voices are being silenced. In fact, you won't even use this footage. Actually, we will. Bob, we both (laughs) know that's not going to happen. Yeah, my name is James. Whatever, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, that is really great. That's very funny. Um, but but let me let me though also just chime in with something else, which is um, look um, this 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 line about being silenced is very very old, and I'll tell you a story in a second from my time working for Pat Buchanan a long mm. time ago. But um, um, but but I have to say, look, there's a grain of truth to the idea that certain people people are feeling as if they cannot speak certain things without being shut down on college campuses mm-hmm. you know there are a lot of people who feel that there's an intolerant kind of you know uh, authoritarian mode um people are forced to make abject apologies like remember david shore um yeah, I, i'm a huge fan yeah yeah really brilliant young guy who um who just, you know, he posted on Twitter a, a uh, academic study from actually a, an African-American academic who um, pointed out that in, um, in years when there are, or in areas where there are um, riots, um, as opposed to peaceful demonstrations, uh, Republicans tend to benefit uh, and, and Democrats are hurt by rioting. And this was viewed as unacceptable. He wasn't, and so he had to apologize and he actually left left his position. I mean, so there's that kind of thing that does go on and it's not good, okay? Yeah. Um, th- that much having been said um, and acknowledged, I want to tell you a story about many moons ago, back in the 1980s when I was working in the Reagan White House, there, um, Pat Buchanan came aboard as director of communications for a time. And I was working for him. And at one point, he asked me to help him with his fan mail. So um, so I did. And among the things that he got on a regular basis was a steady stream of applause from anti-Semites, mm. okay? saying, you, and, and here, Charlie, you're going to recognize the theme. You ready? You're brave. They won't let you say these things. You're so brave for being willing to be, you know, closed down by the Jewish controlled media and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm Jewish and I was, I found this a little awkward, but I started writing answers to these letters that were kind of anodyne and didn't refer to the anti-Semitic part if I could find one. (laughs) And, um, and Pat actually said to me, 
don't answer the anti-Semites, which is interesting because later he became, alas, um, a little more cordial toward them. But anyway, that is my old, old story. Um, just to just to remind us, I guess, that this is this is the line that they always use. You know, when when you should be um, when you should be using your own judgment to say certain things are simply uh, indecent, racist, awful, uh, you know, unfair, whatever. Um, to, if 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 you go forward and say them anyway, somebody is going to praise you. No doubt, somebody is going to praise you for being brave enough to stand up to the censors. Never fails. To, to, to say something that just shocks people and therefore you are you you, you are not only a victim but a, but a great truth teller you yeah know, you, you make it an important point here and I think people do need to understand this that what's happened is is that the extreme cases of cancel culture are then leveraged to defend uh, the the bad actors both in the media and politics so you, exactly. you have a case of, of, of a, at a campus where somebody says something that's uh, relatively bland or, or had something on Twitter 10 or 15 years ago and they lose their job or they are exiled and that that you know the, the injustice is is obvious but then you have the United States senators and you know Fox News hosts uh, yeah. and, and, and others use that to create this zone around them that you shouldn't criticize me so right you know, every time you have an extreme actual example of cancel culture, which is real out there, um, I don't know if you follow the, the case of the of the new editor of Teen Vogue, you know, 27 year old young woman who had some um, t really tasteless um, uh, tweets 10 years ago when mm -hmm. she was 16. And mm -hmm. this is a big push for her to lose her job. I mean, it's it's like, guys, a little bit of grace here. I mean, right. it, 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 I mean, she's we're. None of us want to be judged by what we were 16. But then when you see United States senators, you know, like like Josh Hawley use this or, uh, you know, a t a Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson now uses almost the exact rhetoric that Pat Buchanan used to use when he was dipping his toe into anti-Semitism, that the establishment hates this and they're trying to shut me up and they're trying mm -hmm. to do all of these things. And so he's created it. You know, I, I wrote this yesterday. He's created this sort of, you know, drill. You say this really outrageously racist thing, and then you, of course, deny that it's racist at all, and then claim victim status if anyone criticizes right. you, and then, and then you fundraise right. off the claims of the cancel culture. And what's happening is that this is creating this sort of zone for people like Ron Johnson to say things about, you know, good Trump protesters, bad, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters, <laughs> and, and being completely, I mean, I... I, I believe that he sincerely doesn't think that there's any racial overtone to this, but also you have people like, and I just want to do this before you, Steve Crowder, um, who is this quote unquote right wing conservative uh, comedian, uh, Fox News contributor at one time. I think he had a thing, you know, called Louder with Crowder. Um, got a big following on on YouTube. Does kind of a you know Ben Shapiro like thing and. Well, he did a, a rant, and I, and I think this is what's, you know, this whole you're being brave and truth-telling is is kind of leading us here. I mean, you know, yes, the left can go too far and cancel culture, but then you have things like what Steve Crowder did. So, so put it in context. They're talking about the stimulus bill, in fact, that there's a provision in the stimulus bill that would provide... Sorry, oh that was my dog. Oh, my... my. See, this dog's... <laughs> See, this is this is where this is where dog the cats cats never interrupt the uh, the, 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 the podcast. So okay, so um, 
he, he's doing a thing about the the, the stimulus bill, the one point nine trillion dollars stimulus bill that had some money set aside for uh, uh, disadvantaged farmers, farmers who've experienced discrimination. I don't know whether it specifically says black farmers or not, but they they say that it does. So they're they're talking about aid set aside for African American farmers who have been historically discriminated against. And this is what Crowder and his co-hosts did with with this thing, you know, mocking African-Americans. I mean, this is this is a flat out racist rant. Let's play a little bit of this. Yeah. Uh, most happy about the new policy. These people. So, yeah, I'm going uh, to buy a plow, man. I'm going to plant that corn. <laughs> Go get a John Deere. Barack Obama, mother. I'm the president of plowing that ad. You. Yeah. I thought the last thing they would want to do was be farmers. Wasn't that a big problem yeah. for hundreds of years? Yeah. Isn't that why Arsenio yeah. Hall called himself the urban man's Johnny Carson? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Are people, are people lining up out in the middle of Cornfield, Iowa for new dunks? Uh, how would you prove this, by the way? Like, how would you prove yeah. that you've been discriminated against? You don't against? have to. You just Well, I didn't say, get that loan. Mean? Sir, you had no credit. Well, that should not have stopped me from getting the loan. Uh, I planted a henna seed tree. <laughs> But it's not growing. Well, I, well, technically it did grow, but that shit ain't XO. Mm-mm. I put it in the ground. <laughs> I planted a VSOP XO tree. I'm getting in some niche esoteric cognac humor, motherfucker. So, um, yeah, not Just not not disgusting. Not, and, and these guys are all white, by the way. So I mean, yeah, they're, they're all doing the black. And of course, black people would would plant trees so that they could they could you know what drink cognac. And then there's jokes about meth being in the ground and everything. Um, but again, but again, I'm I'm sure that Crowder and, and and his fans are thinking, you guys are being brave, you're bold, and you know you folks at the bulwark by talking about this, you're part of cancel culture. You know, yeah, BS. I mean, that's yeah. just yeah, no. yeah. I mean, the 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 you the the answer to cancel culture is not to lose any standards whatsoever for on anything, right? I mean, to be criticized is not to be canceled. Um, and uh, well, that's and, right. These guys deserve to be condemned in the strongest terms. That is the most vile thing. And it makes me want to run a million miles away from anybody who's calling themselves conservative these days. It's just so off-putting. My God. Well, you're starting to get more and more of it. I mean, this this is this is one of the things that 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 that's happening, though, is it's created this space of where there's no accountability. For this kind of speech. And of course, when you call them out, you're going to have the usual suspects who, again, I want to emphasize that there are cases where people go too far, uh, you know, of course. but but that is not a justification for what you saw last night. And there's, there'll probably be no no consequences for it whatso, what, whatsoever. OK, so let's talk about J.D. Vance. Um, now, people who are not familiar with his work, you know, when he burst on the scene, this Yale graduate uh this book a hillbilly elegy uh was a was a phenomenon wasn't it i mean because it 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 really showed it purported to show this the what the new underclass the working class the the forgotten american right that Mm -hmm. uh that that trump was talking about so tell me a little bit about jd vance and, and how he went from the author of this massive bestseller to the guy that's sitting with seb gorka and going to run as a Trumpian candidate for U.S. Senate. 
This is so painful because I was one of his biggest boosters when his book debuted in 2016. I wrote a long piece about it for National Review. Mm. Um, I had him on my podcast, um, and uh, and and I was so impressed. I mean, I said in the review that uh, that this book was first of all, it's very moving. Um, it uh, his depiction of what it was like to be a kid growing up in a completely dysfunctional home with a mother who was an addict and who had this revolving door of husbands and boyfriends and 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 step siblings and all the rest of it. Um, and violence. I mean, at one point, his grandmother tried to kill his grandfather by dousing his bed with gasoline and lighting a match. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're looking at. I mean, it was a, it was a gripping, gripping read, but it was also very intelligent and nuanced. And, you know, he was trying to understand how things had gotten to this point and uh, sort of play sociologist a little bit. Anyway, it was a really interesting book. I said it was like, it was like, the fish town in in Charles Murray's book coming apart, you know, mm-hmm. come to life, right? And um, and so I was amazed and bitterly disappointed to see. By the way, I, as I mentioned in this piece, um, in 2016, uh, he he became JD Vance became uh, very sought after by the press um, to sort of describe what the appeal of Donald Trump was among working class whites from which he came. And he he tried to do that, but he was very clear in all those interviews that he personally did not like Trump, though all of his family members were probably going to vote for the guy, that he wasn't, and that he found his his influence really baleful. And and uh and so, you know, it was amazing to watch uh, over the last few years, as he has gradually just morphed from this really impressive young new voice who was conservative but uh, but but hard headed and and also wanting to be understanding about the problems of people uh, who are struggling and so on, he morphs from that into a Trump guy. I mean, he, if you look at his Twitter feed now, it is, you know, retweets of uh, Tucker Carlson and Mike Cernovich. And as you say, he's appearing on the podcast with Dinesh D'Souza and Seb Gorka. This is this is not and, just that he's that he's in Trump world. He's in the in the real the fever swamps of Trump world. Well, let me let me get to that because um that was the thing that really made my heart sink when i saw it he he tweeted uh back in about a month ago in february um something along lines of someone should ask jeffrey epstein leon black and uh john weaver whether it's really a crazy conspiracy all caps uh that powerful people are abusing children now, now, John John Weaver is the guy who's been accused of, you know, sending these uh, these these text messages, and he's, you know, let the kind of the disgraced founder of the Lincoln Project for people. Correct. Oh, okay. Uh, so, which, so he's kind of li- he's linking them all together. He's um, linking them all together. So first of all, um, you know, Jeffrey Epstein was a convicted child uh, abuser, although they were underage girls. Let's just say they weren't little children, but anyway, they were. Yeah. So he was convicted. Total scumball. Agreed. 
Uh, John Weaver has been accused of sending inappropriate messages to teenage boys. There's been no trial. There's been no conviction. There's I don't think there's even been a charge brought. Maybe there yeah. will be, but okay. Um, and, uh, and, and Leon Black is in a completely different situation, which I'll get to in a second. But to, to cite those two things and then to say, you know, therefore, the conspiracy theory called QAnon is not so crazy. The QAnon conspiracy <laughs> alleges that a huge cabal of Democrats and Hollywood celebrities are abusing not teenagers, mind you, but little children and then killing and eating them. Okay. So, you know, to, to, to put in all caps, crazy conspiracy, you know, as if to say, see, the idea of a crazy conspiracy is not so crazy after all, is about the most repellent thing I can imagine. There's one more thing. This Leon Black, I think I'm getting the name right. Mm -hmm. He is a guy in New York who was um, apparently involved in some uh, financial transactions, kind of eye-popping financial transactions with Jeffrey Epstein. This came to light, but there has been no allegation that that guy was involved in what, you know, in, in, in abuse of minors in any way. So, so here's a graduate of the Yale Law School, you know, just sort of flinging baseless accusations at people in public. Yeah. Uh, that's what J.D. Vance has become because I guess, I don't know why, but I guess he's ambitious and he's taking the temperature of the Republican Party. And deciding that this is this is the way forward. You know, speaking of that whole QAnon thing, the the obsession with pedophiles and you know, going after the Lincoln Project, and this 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 is a complete digression here. But um, there's, there's there's a there's a guy on on uh, on, the, on the twitters who had a really stupid uh, tweet the other day, and he he said, you know that. This was after the at the Grammaries when they, they performed the WAP, which we're not going to get into. And he said, you know, you know, in schools today. Um, you know, they're, they're going to be, you know, more open to WAP than to Dr. Seuss in, okay. So I, I, I tweeted, I said, name the school, just name yeah. the school, just show me one school in America where they're, they're, they're banning Dr. Seuss, but would perform, um, WAP that, that thing, just name one school. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because of course it was bullshit. Yeah. So the guy, um, who has 280,000 followers on Twitter direct messaged me last night. Oh. And he said, and he said, what's it like supporting the pedophiles of the Lincoln project? Do you Ugh. drive, do you drive the unmarked van for them? Oh my God. Now, interestingly enough, you'll notice that he doesn't still name the, he still does not name the school. <laughs> it doesn't come up, but it's like, it, it's throwing it around. So the fact that JD Vance is in that world, people need to understand that that's kind of a, it, it's not a. I want to say code, but it's it's not it's not subtle. It's not veiled. It's like okay, I'm gonna I'm going to now make myself acceptable in this world. Now, just just dial back to what you were saying before. When his book came out, he was not Trumpian. Nope. And the only way he got connected was people are basically talking about that 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 kind of social breakdown that let you know in rural America that sense of helplessness and alienation that fed, you know, much of what's going on. Right. You know, but he was, he, you know, I mean, he would say things like, you know, you know, that there's a lack of agency here, a feeling you have little control over your life and a willingness to blame everyone but yourself. He's not endorsing that he's, he's talking about it. And mm -hmm. as, and as you write in, in the bulwark today, in a sense, Vance was the anti-Trump back then. 
He was a true son of Appalachia, striving to lift his community, in contrast to the faux populace from Manhattan seeking to flatter and exploit them. Vance felt they needed hope and a generous dose of honesty. Trump offered fantasies and cunningly curated hatred. By the way, that is a great line. The curated mm-hmm. hatred. Uh, it's so and, and and during the book tour, he he wasn't shy about the fact that he didn't like Donald Trump. Correct. Right? Absolutely right. In fact, he appeared on a podcast that I did in those days with uh, Jay Nordlinger. It was called Need to Know. And uh, he mentioned in the course of our conversation that, you know, he, as the, as 2016 played out, he became more and more convinced that Trump might win. And he said, I texted my book editor or my agent, I can't remember, but he said, I texted her and said, um, if Trump wins, it would be terrible for the country, but good for book sales. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible for the country though. I mean, he was on, you know, he was, he was blunt about that. Um, And, uh, and, you know, he said there, there he thinks that Trump is taking, he said in 2016, he thought that Trump was taking the white working class to a very dark place. Yep. He said that on NPR. He's yep. noxious and leading the white working class to a very dark place. Another interview, he agreed that Trump's rhetoric was racially incendiary. Again, this is, this is important to put this in context because somehow, despite all of this success and everything, now he is right at the heart of the most noxious corners of Trumpism. So you yeah. have a theory about how that works? I'm, <sighs> I'm, I'm amazed by it. I, I was actually having a conversation with another one of our anti, you know, small group of anti-Trump, one of the five of us. And so mm-hmm. and we, we were both saying that we, we continue to be surprised by watching the transition of some of these folks. And I was really glad to hear him say that because you think that after five years of this, that we would no longer have the ability to be surprised, but, but we still are. So yeah. how does J.D. Vance go from that guy to this? I I really am just speculating now, um, but I I suspect that you know he became really really a hot item on all the TV chat shows and so forth for being the spokesman for the white working class. Yeah, and if if you're going to be anti-Trump, nobody is going to take you seriously and invite you back to speak about the white working class anymore because you will have alienated yourself to some degree as their spokesman right you're you're going to be seen as as not really speaking the authentic voice of the white working class and so i think there might have been a little bit of like pigeonholing of him by the by the producers you know we're going to slot him in here as the trump guy and he gradually sort of put those clothes on and and adopted it I, that's the best i can do yeah, I, I sometimes you just don't know what circles people fall in, what rabbit holes they fall down. Um, you you become part of a of a very very different community. Uh, there had to be sort of a shock for him going from what he was before to the kind of celebrity that he suddenly enjoyed, the wealth and celebrity of mm-hmm. of having mm-hmm. that uh, that book, and then of course a movie, a very bad movie was made of it, and um, at least it was badly reviewed. And so, you know, there's a little bit of disorientation. Um, and not everybody handles that kind of celebrity, that kind of attention well. But exactly. this, this this transition is is remarkable. But also, you know, as you point out, 
it's 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 he's a smart guy. I mean, he's intelligent. He's he is a good writer. He is highly educated. And yet so he has chosen to now morph himself into somebody that can sit with the people from American greatness, which is uh, often, you know, overtly white nationalist, uh, sit and talk with Seb Gorka, um, you know, hang out with a complete grifter fraud like Dinesh D'Souza. And you kind of wonder what goes on inside his heart and his soul. It's like, I mean, you know, does he does he know what he's doing to himself? Well, look, look, if somebody writes out a ten million dollar check to you, like Peter Thiel has basically done and said, I will bankroll your campaign for United States Senate. And here's ten million dollars. That's going to turn people's heads. Yeah, but yeah, true. Although his head was already turned, um, and and I think your point about the the celebrity aspect is really important because uh, people get a taste of that, and the the you know the limos picking them up all the time, and uh, and and being fawned over and being famous, it it can really go to people's heads, and and they can get to the point where they just cannot imagine living without it. And uh, yeah, that dopamine hit of belonging yes. and getting that self-validation. Yep. You and know, of I, course, there's a whole world that that you become a huge deal in now. I mean, you know, you go on Laura Ingram and Tucker and then the Dinesh D'Souza podcast and all that. And there are n- millions of outlets. They're all being closed down, of course. They're all being silenced. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there's a million places that you could go. And, and you know, I guess... Look, he had a. I, I'm even. I mean, I, if honestly, I loved this book so much. I feel even slightly sad about having to be critical of him, even though what he's done is terrible, terrible, terrible. I I feel sad about it because this guy had a rotten, horrible childhood, really, um, in so many ways. And and it's amazing that he was able to turn his life around as much as he did. And you know, he he joined the Marine Corps, and he said that was like a four year. Um, lesson in character development. You know, he learned how to make his bed and pay his bills and eat healthy and and show up on time. And, you know, all those basic things that he notes in the book, a lot of people in the white working class don't do. And that's one of the reasons that they're not thriving is that they they don't have control over themselves. And um, and it's just so sad to see um, that man who who had such insight and and uh, and accomplished so much at that point, you know, getting getting himself into the Marines. Then he graduated, I think, in like three years or maybe two and a half from from Ohio State and got his B.A. and then got got into Yale Law. He's obviously brilliant. And um, and he wrote this great book that really made a contribution. And now look at him. It's just. I mean, I guess it makes me despair a little bit about the nature of our country that that somebody who's that bright and that ambitious thinks he has to go into the sewer to have success. Okay, can I play an unlicensed psychologist for a second here? Yeah. Listening to what you're describing, I wonder if he really thinks with all of that success that he actually really ever belonged and what he has now in this Trump magaverse is belonging. Now, he may belong to Dinesh yeah. D'Souza and Seb Gorka and Donald Trump and those guys, but uh, he, he's got to be thinking when he's sitting, you know, with Peter Thiel, you know, flying around in his private jet going, I'm the kid from Appalachia, you know, and this is cool. These are these yeah. are my people. Now, I, I was actually thinking be. about this, you know, that if I was 
and, and because I'm an only child and a contrarian, I, I don't think this would have, you know, changed my my take on this. But I can only imagine somebody in their 30s or, you know, whose career is ahead of them and, you know, being dazzled by the trappings of power. I've often thought, you know, you know, would should we be surprised if Donald Trump calls somebody up and says, hey, Mona, would you like to fly down uh, to uh, Mar-a-Lago with uh, with Melania and and me on Air Force One, and you know we'll just we'll spend the weekend there and we'll we'll, we'll talk about stuff. Um, it wouldn't affect you, but you can certainly imagine how that will dazzle a lot of people. The trappings of power, the relevance, being part of all of this, being you know being at the center of all this. There was another point, you know, going back to your point about the, you know, the hits, the dopamine hits, you know, that you get on social media or anything. And somebody brought something up yesterday that honestly had not occurred to me. The if, if you, you know, the the celebrity of somebody being on Fox News and this may or may not apply to J.D. Vance, who made a gazillion dollars on, on the book. But, you know, uh, you know, for a lot of the folks that you see on Fox News, many of them are paid by appearance. And therefore, they understand there's a huge incentive for them. It's a big deal for them to make sure they fit in and say what they are expected to say. Yeah. Because if they don't do it, um, those invitations are going to dry up. And it's a big deal whether they're on, uh, you know, five times a week versus once a month. And it, yes. can, be a lot, it can be a lot of money. I mean, so and just imagine people, you know, can. I'll just throw it out. I mean, imagine if you got paid five hundred dollars for every time you showed up, and you might get two hits a day, sometimes, um, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. and then start to realize that if you break bad on Trump or you begin to say things that don't fit the narrative, you know, your phone's not going to ring. And oh, there's yeah. there's a real so not only do you not get the psychological uh, fame boost of being on television all the time. But it's a real it's a real incentive. So there's all of these incentives for people to go that direction, to be that way. And even somebody like a J.D. Vance obviously is not immune to it. That is true. Um, uh, I remember um, Fred Barnes telling the story from many years ago about, you know, when when he ceased being on television uh, every week, his phone just stopped ringing people. It was like all of a sudden a, a switch had been thrown. He didn't exist for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, well, that's 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 one of those things where you have to put it in perspective that uh, that that just like Twitter is not real life, neither is uh, is television real life. So uh, this this piece on on JD Vance is it really is an indication of what's happening to the Republican Party, though. I mean, I think your your point of saying, look, this is this is significant. Um, I mean, I, how, does, how does your article begin here? You know, it, it's like, you know, the question of what will become of the Republican Party, you know, seems to be, you know, everybody's thinking about it. But whatever the future of the party will be, the shape shifting J.D. Vance sheds lights on the dynamics of how we got here and where the Republican Party is headed, which is really kind of depressing when you think Charlie, about it. Charlie, I know. And, you know, the last few weeks we've been hearing that there's about to be a big civil war within the Republican Party with the Trumpists on one side and the traditional Republicans on the other, led, I suppose, by Mitch McConnell. Um, I've been, you know, I've been ready to sign up, but there's no, there's no civil war. No. It's, uh, it's, it's done. It is Trump's party. Completely. It, you know, it, it, it is, it is Trump's party and I just don't see how it's going to play out in the, in the Senate election. So, 
Um, switching gears, you know, speaking of, of, of fights, Mitch McConnell essentially said that he would have a scorched earth uh, United States Senate if the, uh, if the Democrats move to abolish the filibuster. There does appear to be some momentum to at least modify the filibuster. Even Biden is now suggesting certain changes and Manchin suggested he's open to it. So, I, what, what, you know, I mean, I've always been in favor of the filibuster because I like the idea of the Senate being, you know, the slower more deliberative body, but it does seem that in the current environment that, well, it's going, it, I, I think it's likely to happen. What, what are your thoughts on the film? Where do you come down? I'm, I'm still evolving. So I'm, I'm evolving too, but one of the, um, one of the arguments that I think has, has force is that the, so the filibuster of course was not part of the original constitution. It was, it's a rule adopted right. by the Senate. Um, and, um, it was, you know, the, the constitutional system was never designed so that you would need a supermajority for everything, right. For even ordinary legislation, they specified the times when you would need a supermajority It's cases of impeachment, adopting treaties and certain other situations. So this, this was added in and you, I think it's, arguable and and kind of persuasive that right now it simply frustrates the will of the voters who say, you know, I, I vote for people and then I don't see any results because things get bottled up in the Senate. And um, the voters should be able to see the results. Maybe they're going to make bad choices. Maybe the things that the Democrats do. And by the way, on our last uh, Beg to Differ, we talked about the danger of inflation that uh, is possible with this huge COVID spending combined with the loose money policies of the Fed. Um, it's possible that's going to turn out very badly. But if so, it'd be good for the voters to know who to blame or who to give credit to if things are good. And um, so uh, to the degree that the filibuster muddies that responsibility, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking maybe it's okay for it to go. Well, I, I, I did see one one comment yesterday that made the point. Look, uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, pushed through Supreme Court nominees, uh, lifetime appointments uh, with a you know bare fifty-one vote uh, threshold. Uh, if if Democrats come back and say we think that the right to vote is so important that we think that it should be the fifty-one vote margin, um, is is that as radical as uh, the Republicans are making it out? I mean, we, we've right. already had the nuclear option. We have yeah. how, how many votes did Amy Coney Barrett get uh, for confirmation? Was it like fifty-one? Yeah, it was really close. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, if you track it, every single confirmation vote has been narrower and narrower over the last twenty years. Right, and and something and so, like that. And, and so that you know th that that would argue, particularly if you do think that the voting rights is a existential issue for. Um, for, for democracy. And, and, by, and by the way, I just want to just point out that Rick, uh, is it Rick Hassan, uh, has a great piece, election expert in the Washington Post, making kind of the point that I was trying to make last week, that Democrats should not die on the hill of H.R. 1, which is this bloated, crammed, possibly unconstitutional piece of legislation. Um, the John Lewis bill is there that restores many of the aspects of the Voting Rights Act that were gutted by the Supreme Court. That bill is very powerful. It's very broad. It's not prescriptive. Might actually attract some Republican support. Um, so it's it, it, I'm I'm a little worried about the obsession that uh, the folks on on the left have with HR one. When the, hello people, the John Lewis bill is right there. 
But, you know, yeah. did, I, I went back, uh, Mona, and I was looking at, you know, the votes in 1965 for the Voting Rights Act. I don't have it mm-hmm. right in front of me. But I, th- I think the it got something like 79 votes in the U.S. Senate, well over 300 votes in the House, mm-hmm. overwhelming bipartisan majorities. And then it was um, it was uh, it was re-upped. Uh, under Republican presidents, you know, signed by under George, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, Th- this was never a super hyper partisan issue. And yet now it's impossible to imagine that there'd be enough Republican votes to break a filibuster. I mean, that's that that's what's changed so radically is that voting rights used to be something that both parties could embrace r- with, without a huge amount of controversy. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's and that is completely evaporated now. No, and and that that's precisely right. And let me just make though another quick point about HR one, because um, I do think it's worth noting that the Democrats really get wrapped around the axle on this whole question of money and politics, which um, they they think is a huge problem for them. But it really, I mean, I think they're kind of living in the past. Um, as uh, as my colleague Damon Linker pointed out on our podcast. Um, you know, the, the era of big money is passing. I mean, a lot of these candidates who've been successful, including Bernie Sanders and, and uh, Donald Trump, did so not on the strength of big contributors, but on the strength of small dollar donors. And um, in the internet age, that's kind of how it's going. It's not to say that big donors don't have any influence. They they do, but but it's not as... Um, it's not as huge as as the Democrats think, and then also, you know, they they do have they do have the problem of of truly um, uh, possibly you know impeding people's liberties by insisting that the uh, yeah against the wishes, for example, of the American Civil Liberties Union, that everybody who donates to anybody has to be you know, revealed. A lot of people like to donate anonymously, and sometimes they have good reasons to do so, as people did who were donating, say, to the uh, to the NAACP back in in the in the right. civil rights era and so forth. I Which mean, is there, the there can case. be blowback. Yeah, no, they, yeah. Th- this is the key case. People look look this up. the uh, The state of Alabama versus NAACP. I think what's NAACP versus Alabama, um, where uh, at, at that time you had white the white Southern establishment wanted to force the NAACP to uh, reveal the names of all of their supporters, which mm-hmm. would have opened them up potentially for all kinds of harassment and blowback. And, and terrorism. Of, exactly. And, they, you know, burning crosses. So it went mm-hmm. all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, you know, came down with a landmark ruling that, no, um, you cannot compel uh, this kind of exposure, that anonymous speech is protected. Now, people may not like that, and you may call it dark money, but right now, I mean, it's the that the NAACP case, uh, people ought to go back and look at that. And also the objections of the ACLU to this H.R. Uh, one. So this is not just bad faith right wing opposition. And by the way, you mentioned the era of big money. If money really was, you know, God and king in politics, Michael Bloomberg would be the president of the United States right now. Yeah, precisely. Yes. <laughs> Didn't work. Hey, uh, by the way, uh, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed by a vote of 52 to 48. So 52 uh, yeah. votes. So if, in, if in fact, um, you'd have the John Lewis Act um, that is uh, is ratified, you know, 52, 48, this is not the end of the United States Senate as we know it. <laughs> right, exactly. And by the way, you know, the Senate still... 
um, by its nature and structure, is still going to be very different from the House. People say, oh, if you get rid of the filibuster, it'll be just like the House. Well, no, it won't. The senators are elected every six years, not every two. And their terms are staggered, one-third, 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 every, every election cycle. Um, so there's a lot more stability. There's a lot more distance from the voters. Um, uh, they represent an entire state, not a possibly gerrymandered district. So I, the fear that this will turn the Senate into a, you know, just a smaller version of the House I don't think is real. I, I don't think it's true. Well, I think we're going to find out relatively soon what is going to, what what will happen. Mona Charon, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Uh, uh, people ought to check out if you if you enjoy the Bulwark podcast, uh, check out our other podcast, the Secret Podcast, the Next Level Podcast, uh, Sunny Bunch's podcast, and of course Mona's podcast. Beg to differ with the All Star panel of Bill Galston, Damon Linker, Linda Chavez, Mona, and a special guest every week. Hey, t- and Thursday night we're doing a live stream, right, Charlie? You're in, aren't you? No, not this week. I was the oh, last the, the, the oh. last two weeks. No, but I'm glad you you brought that up. If you're a Bulwark Plus member, this is something we do every Thursday night. It is a live stream um, of the Bulwark of the Bulwark uh, staff, and uh, you know we tell you what we think, and they they tend to be very, uh, very very sort of informal and unbuttoned. Um, it is BYOB, and Mona's dog makes appearances. does does show up Uh, and that is tomorrow night at uh, 8 o'clock eastern time 7 o'clock central time do we know what we're talking about yet uh no (laughs) maybe jd vance will come up again there you go maybe we will we will find out and thank you everybody for listening to today's bulwark podcast i'm charlie sykes we will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again